So right off the bat, I'll apologize for the length of this introduction, but seeing as this is the first episode, it seems like the proper time to lay out my expectations and intentions. And I don't have expectations, but I do have intentions. So there are millions of podcasts now, and because of that, I don't really expect much of a listenership. Sorry, that's pins my cat, who, if you're on video, you can... See, she's participating. But anyway, so there are millions of podcasts now, and I don't expect much of a listenership because of that. So far, though, I've recorded 20 episodes. I think about 20 episodes. And I intend to keep it up as long as it's fun. So this is something that I've wanted to do for years, but only now uh, because I've graduated from... Uh, Columbia in New York, and I'm going to Stanford uh, for a PhD. Do I have access to people in the tops of their fields? So my intention is just to have conversations, whether they're fascinating or just fun. And so far, I've spoken with philosophers, mathematicians, strength trainers, doctors, a bunch of my friends. I even had an episode with my uncle just talking about ice cream, which is probably my favorite one that I've done so far. But anyway, I only hope that other people might enjoy the conversations like I do. Uh, Maybe at some point I'll have some solo episodes, but for now I'll post one a week, maybe two occasionally because I have this big backlog and I'll post them on Monday mornings. So this first episode is particularly special to me because it's with a professor of mine from Columbia. Uh, He's the most important teacher I've ever had and one of the most important people in my life. And though I don't like this word, if I have a mentor, it's him. So Heim Gaifman is a mathematician, a probability theorist, a philosopher, and a theoretical computer scientist, among other things. He got his PhD from one of the most important logicians of the 20th century, Alfred Tarski, at Berkeley in mathematics in 1962 with a thesis on infinite Boolean algebras. He was also, if you're into philosophy, Rudolf Carnap's uh, research assistant in Foundations of Probability, and those are just two huge titans in philosophy. So though he's published groundbreaking and original results in all sorts of areas, not just mathematics, he was once the world leader in non-standard models of piano arithmetic and was formative in the development of model theory, which is one of the four branches of mathematical logic as they're generally conceived. Uh, Another mathematician, Roman Cossack, he's a Professor Emeritus at CUNY in New York once told me that Haim is one of the last old masters of his generation. So with that being said, I just finished re-listening to our conversation, which we had about two months ago when I was still in NYC, finishing up at Columbia. And now, like I mentioned, I'm on my way to Stanford, spending the summer in Chicago, uh, where I'm from. Where I'll be, but in Stanford, I'll be studying symbolic logic, foundations of mathematics, and certainly a variety of other things. And in our conversation, we discuss a philosophical topic called vagueness. And it's different from vagueness or ambiguity, how we use those words in everyday life, though there are some similarities. But vagueness deals with quote unquote 
borderline phenomena. So can a single hair distinguish a bald man from a non-bald man? Or can one grain of sand distinguish a heap of sand from a non-heap of sand? And though it might seem like a simple topic on the surface level, giving it a thorough treatment really quickly becomes subtle and sophisticated and very difficult. So our conversation starts out just a bit slowly with a story Haim told me that comes from Jewish folklore, but then we pretty quickly get into the meat of the issue. And we touch on classical solutions to vagueness, as well as some more topical and contemporary issues, such as Roe v. Wade and the arbitrariness of determining when a fetus is or isn't viable. I probably interrupt Haim too much, but I like to think that after 20 episodes, I'm slowly getting better at this, so we'll see where I'm at come episode 50. Also, please forgive the audio and video editing. At this point, I'm doing it myself, and because I'm just doing this for fun, I'm also being a bit lazy, so this is a one-take introduction, and I'm not doing any editing really at all. So... Lastly, not every episode will be this technical, though some will probably be more so. I talk with a leading number theorist at Columbia in one episode, and we talk a lot about math. Uh, But some won't be technical at all, like when I speak with my uncle about ice cream and I eat three pints during that episode, so you can look forward to that. But anyway, I hope you enjoy my talk with Convert. My talk with Heim Gaifman. I'm not going to edit that out. Uh, but now I'll hand it over to Robinson, the drummer. Ah, there's my drum set for some intro music. And wow, this has been six minutes. I apologize. Okay, I've already lied, actually. Just one last note. I sprung this on Haim at the last moment, and though he really held his own very well under my questioning, he didn't get to prepare for this at all, and last taught a course on vagueness over a year before we recorded this conversation. What I was hoping to talk about with you today, Professor, is vagueness. Oh, yeah, okay. In particular, in particular, the Sorites paradox. Right. Okay. I know you know yeah. a great deal about that, and I thought a nice way to start would be hearing your story about the young man in rabbi school. I think that's a good. Oh, oh that. That's a good way of illustrating what vagueness is for people who who don't know. Okay, so this is. Uh it's actually in the Talmud, but it is uh, there is a part of the Talmud which is, so to speak, uh, legends and tales and so on. I mean, the Talmud is a huge uh, collection of uh, literature that covers hundreds of years. So it's all there. Is that part of the Torah? Or no, no, the no, no, Bible? no, no, it's something no, different? no, 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 no. We are speaking about difference of a thousand years or something like it that. It predates the Bible? It comes after the Bible. Okay. The Bible is the, the source, the most holy source, so to speak, of Jewish religion, the written Bible. This, this is called Torah Shebechtav. That means 
the law as it is written and uh, so th this would be the the Jewish Bible it uh, wouldn't include the New Testament and when the Christians speak about the Bible they mean all of it including the New Testament and sometimes they just mean only the New Testament but uh, New Testament you know there are the Matthew this uh, what they call I forgot the Gospels the, the Gospels but there are uh, they, they, they are the uh, Matthew, uh, Luke, and, and Peter, so, Peter, mm -hmm. and John, and then, uh, and then there is also, but but Luke, I think, is much later. Okay. Okay. But uh, we're talking about the Talmud, which is we, the Talmud is uh, starts from. The, Five, let me see, around uh, 500 BC and goes on to about uh, 1000 AD. Okay. So it covers a collection of uh, rules, discussions, legends, tales, gossip of 1500 years so it's a huge body and there is a, it starts from the Mishnah which is a more direct interpretation and then interpretation of the Mishnah and interpretation of the interpretation and so on this is this is what it uh, consists of so uh, there is a story about uh, Rabbi Jeremiah, I think, some, some not Jeremiah, the, the prophet, who, was much, uh, who lived about uh, 525 uh, BC, but a much later Jeremiah, Rabbi Jeremiah, that uh, was present in one of the discussions in the, in the Talmud. Among the, of the, and there is a rule is about uh, what do you do if you find a chick of a bird that fell from its nest in a tree uh, should you return it to the nest or can you take it for yourself and if you take it for yourself, is the assumption going to be that you're you're going to eat it, or you're so, going to keep it as a pet? Or? No, no, you can do with it whatever you want. It's it's I it's usually eating it or keeping it as a pet. Okay. But uh, I don't I don't think they had a culture of keeping birds as pets. And and just to clarify though, so where this rule is, this this is sort of like kosher law, something something no, like the, that. No, this is. A law which is precedes this discussion. It can be in the Mishnah, or the Mishnah is before the Talmud, okay. but it's still in the interpretation of the law. Okay. It's a, it, it it covers perhaps it comes perhaps as an interpretation of a text which is several hundred years older. Okay. But it's actual law. It's it's a, a, it's, a, it's a, well. So there's a law. What can you do? What you can what, what you can do? Yeah, they discuss when the you law. Find a chick. But, but actually, if you want to know what the law is, you have to go to another body of, because the tradition later is a poskim that the one who really decides how to decide practical cases, which comes to the rabbi at the time, at, at their time. But this, this is. 
in, these are based on the Talmud and the Mishnah, but this is what a rabbi would really do. Okay. And then it depends what kind of rabbi is it, very conservative, reform, and so on. It can be all kinds of streams and uh, in, 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 Juda in Judaism. So there are the conservatives, there are the orthodox, and there are the reform. Okay, I'm getting you too far off track from yes, the story. Yes, well, I mean, you want to know more detail, I'll give you more detail. <laughs> okay, so. Okay. so... So they are discussing this, and it says, uh, if it falls down, and if it is within 500 uh, feet, or 50, I'm sorry, 50 feet or something, it's not feet, it's something like this. Oh, I cannot. This is what the distance is. Something before feet, however they yeah, were measuring yes, distance back then. If it's, if it's within 50 feet, you must return it to the to the nests because it it is it belongs to its mother. But if it is more than fifty, then you can take it for yourself. And the implication being, you can uh, eat it, kill it, and eat it, or do with it whatever you want. You want to free it, free it, and so on. It, it's your property. And then Rabbi Jeremiah asks them, what happens if one foot if the if it spreads its legs and one foot is within and we, the other foot is without, so they threw him out of the the <laughs> rabbi's. The, the, they threw him out from the room where they were studying because they thought he was just uh, trying to confuse them or a the joke or something like that. And so, what this illustrates is broadly that vagueness in philosophy is concerned with borderline phenomena where you can't tell yeah that that is usual the definition of vagueness right and and vagueness as far as you know yeah did it begin with eubulides vagueness yes because eubulides is the author of the soritis paradox and the bald man and the bold man. So that seems like a good place to go next. So really quickly, mm. what's the, the bald man paradox? Uh, the bald man paradox is a really a variation of the soritis. Soritis means the hip paradox. Right. I think it comes from soros, which might mean grain or something I don't, like I don't, that. I don't, I'm, I don't know Greek, so yeah. I wouldn't <laughs> be able to. Yeah, but something like that. Now, it, it, it means their hip, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bald man is uh, is another version that means a man without uh, any hair on his head, not that he shaves his head, but any hair of his head is certainly bald, uh, or a man with a, full, a head full of hair is not bald. Now, if you omit one hair and it, it is uh, not a bald man, it still doesn't, but if you continue plucking out the hair, eventually it becomes a bald. So, right. so this is another so version so of the psoritis. So at some point, he starts out not bald. Yeah. At some point, he is completely bald, right. and presumably, if he's got two or three hairs on his head, he's bald. But the idea that one hair is Makes going to yeah, distinguish right. a bald man from a not bald man right. is absurd. Yes. And then the Sorites paradox this is, is a, similar. The, yeah, the Sorites paradox is that if you do, if you take all of this as conditionals, if it is, if this is not a heap, and you well, add, so if we start, so one grain of sand is clearly not a heap. Yes. Ten thousand grains of sand is, is a heap. Is a heap. 
and then and then you have to, uh, you have the general rule if n is not a heap and then n plus one is not a heap. right because if one and grain of sand is a heap then two won't be a heap yes and, and then so, three won't be a heap. yes and then you have modus ponens applied i don't know thousand times thousand applications of modus ponens gives you the paradox right okay. because you're simultaneously saying that no one grain of sand is going to make a difference, yes. but at some point it goes from not being a heap to being a heap. Right. Okay. Okay. So. And Eubulides invented those paradoxes, yes. and they're they're considered paradoxes of vagueness because they deal with these borderline cases that where is, you're that where is, you're no longer sure if yes, something is a heap or not a heap. That is correct. You don't know how to classify it. Okay. Okay. So. Uh, so this is connected with vagueness, but actually, uh, there are questions. There are vagueness need not involve by, by itself. Vagueness um, doesn't have to be associated with the Sorites paradox because there are cases of vagueness in which there is not enough items to make a Sorites chain. Okay. Okay, for instance, if you say uh, a large number of fingers has been infected and I have 10 fingers on my hands, right? A large number of fingers has been infected. This is still vague because you don't know what a large number of but it is a large number of fingers out of from 0 to 10, okay? And uh, obviously, one finger is not a, a large number, but ten finger is a large number. But a finger can make a big difference because the, it's simply too short to make a sorites chain. And what distinguishes vagueness in this case from just ambiguity? Uh, vagueness is this uh, distinction from ambiguity is that you have a rule that if n is a large number, n plus n is also a large number. So there, there is a kind of a scale involved there. So whereas just ambiguity means simply many, very many meanings to the same word, right. like a, 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 what is it, bank. Bank can be a, a building in which there is a bank. Bank may be an institution of a bank, and bank may be a bank of a river. So if you open a dictionary, then almost all words in the dictionary will have uh, words which are homonyms pronounced in the same way, but they have different meanings. So ambiguity plays on a multiplicity of meanings, Yes. whereas vagueness is more concerned with some sort of phenomenon or phenomena that are scalar. Yes. I mean, so the, the, how tall scale. you are, right. how big a heap is. Yes. Okay. So this is, uh, this is sometimes, let's see what is, uh, t what, uh, it's called tolerant predicates. Tolerant predicates is predicates which tolerate small increases. And predicates being uh, our properties for people who don't know. Yes, so, predicate is so just, uh, it's, it's what uh, in the language will correspond to, predicate is like beautiful, great, right. tall. And something like 
pitch they will black. Co- they, they, will, some, when they will be correspond to adjectives. Right, and something like pitch black is a predicate that has no tolerance at all because pitch black, presumably, there's only one one shade that's pitch black. This whereas th- this might as well be uh, inc- has some vagueness in it. It might, it might, because pitch black itself, you may wonder, does this merit to be called pitch black right. or not? And then if but it's a little <laughs> bit more, then obviously if the smaller one merits and the bigger one merits, so. There is no way in but which can, in the natural language you can avoid it by adding some sort of adjective. But we can at least, for purposes of argument, contrast yeah. that with something like tall, where there are clearly degrees. 6'1 yeah. is tall, 6'2 yes, is tall. Yes. So there's tolerance in, in tallness where there might be less tolerance in, in pitch blackness. Yes, and that, 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 that for is all correct. intents and purposes yeah, now, it's, right. it's not a tolerant predicate. Yes. Do you happen to know how Eubulides treated, treated these paradoxes, or did he simply just pose them and let he, other people simply, deal with them? He simply posed them. Okay. He was, uh, so to speak, an adversary or an enemy of Aristotle. And he, I mean, they, they were also, I think, politically uh, opposite because he was a Democrat, as far as I remember, and Aristotle, of course, was an aristocrat, and he was the teacher of uh, Alexander, uh, who they were con- the, the, the Athens were conquered by these northern thri- uh, tribes who came and invaded uh, Macedonia. Okay, so Aristotle was politically also connected with what you would call a more rightist regime hmm. nowadays. Not, not a democracy, but uh, a king or an emperor. Not an emperor, emperor that was later invented by the Romans, but uh, a king, a kingdom. So the first responses to vagueness that I'm aware of are the Stoics, the early Stoics, like Chrysippus. Yes, I and don't. To tell you the truth, I don't. For I don't remember exactly how they 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 had. Okay, I uh, have an idea. Okay, and I, I, I knew it. What exactly, Crispus? How they responded to it? But I uh, right now I cannot recall exactly what what the argument was. Well, I think there there are two interesting things about what Chris, Crispus did. Mm-hmm. So one, there was a normative element to the early Stoic. Yeah. Treatment of vagueness. So okay. they used the Sorites puzzles mm-hmm. uh, as a form of like training. So it was a question game. Yes. Somebody would ask, is one grain of sand a heap? Okay. Is two grains of sand a heap? Is three grains of sand a heap? So you stop answering. Right. And the trick was that you would just simply stop answering the question. Yes. And the reason that this was useful for them was they they valued wisdom and not being quote-unquote precipitate in their judgments because they didn't want to make mistakes. So they they would use these sort of questioning games as tools. They were skeptics, if you want, when it comes to knowledge. But uh, they had an extreme moral code. Mm -hmm. So skepticism came with a strict moral code. And I think this is a nice, this is a natural combination. But then the other thing was that they were realists about assertables or or propositions. So they believed that 
but you shouldn't give your consent to to something right. in which there's a slightest doubt you shouldn't answer right right but so the key was that while you might and i i could be i'm going to be imprecise here mm. is that while they were committed to there being a bivalence of propositions so mm. every proposition is either true or false yes. everything assertable they were not committed to the sort of impressions you might have of a sororities chain, any right. particular conditional as corresponding to right. a fact in the world. Right. But I'd like to get to the more recent uh, treatments of okay. the sororities paradoxes. Okay. And, it, and it starts at least, I mean, Russell brings it into the 20, 20th century. That is correct. But Frege had to me a very convincing or at least intuitive response to the bald man paradox uh yes but what was what do you remember what was Frege's response his response i'm gonna put it in the sort of vocabulary that we've been using so far today even mm -hmm. though he used terms like concept mm -hmm. but he probably he would have denied that tolerant predicates are predicates at all uh so he would have said that tallness because it doesn't divide the world into those who are tall and those who are not tall or baldness doesn't cleanly divide those who are bald and not bald in two groups okay. that it's just not a legitimate predicate at all so you're making an assumption that uh this is not exactly what okay he, what tell, tell me what he exactly was. this is i think as russell represents him as 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 having this position. I'm just thinking of a letter he wrote to Marty where yes. he says something to that effect. Yes, Frege said, yeah, that is correct. But first of all, you have to uh, be aware of the fact that uh, Frege was first and foremost committed to establishing the status of mathematics. So in mathematics, there are no vague predicates, and this is right. Because uh, something is or is not prime it is or is not even yeah because there's the no, logic of mathematics there's doesn't no tolerance allow, yes because otherwise you get a contradiction there by doing that there is no tolerance now frege was aware of the fact that in natural language there is tolerance but he treat, treated it as a phenomena of ambiguity so natural language is usually um, this is of course means that it is also ambiguous it cannot cannot be and in that case he prescribed a somewhat arbitrary prescription to say okay you know what in these cases you dis you you may you extend the predicate in an any arbitrary way but you make it not tolerant that's all so you give a certain rule that here I mean that this and not this, and this might be completely arbitrary as long as sentences get truth value, true or false. So Frege's answer has been different when it comes to mathematics and when it comes to ordinary language. In ordinary language, he simply added this as a pragmatic rule to avoid the phenomena that the speaker asserts something and it is not clear whether it's true or false. Okay. So he said he, he, 
he proposed an extra, completely arbitrary rule. Just you know, you make a. In here, you might say he suggested almost a legal practice of making a cut-off point in, in any way, so as to avoid slippery slope phenomena. Sort of reminds me of supervaluationism in that sense. Yeah, uh, but I don't want to get into that. No, the supervaluation is a, is a is a different uh, position, right? And, and I think it's. Uh, I, I think it fine uh, gave it up and so on. So I know that the philosophical literature is full of this, but it is not. Uh, it is not a good position. So how then did he explicitly treat the the bald man paradox? The bald man paradox, you say. Well, you you decide in an arbitrary way of a cut off point. So and so hairs are. Distinguish somebody between baldness and that is correct, okay. and you can see that the legislator sometimes does, in order to make the situation clear, not to have a slippery slope phenomena, introduces some arbitrary cutoff points, and that is it. It's, for instance, uh, even nowadays, if you know that. Uh, uh, the, the Republican judges might overrule, uh, what is it? Roe v. Uh, Wade. Uh, yes, Roe v. Wade. And uh, then it again, it is a question, uh, when is a woman, uh, when is the fetus considered viable? I mean, and, uh, and then they, they would have to introduce an arbitrary point. I mean, the extreme point was whenever there is already a fertilization, then it is viable. This would be the extreme point. But you can put another point there. And different states will have different points. Well, it's interesting how, I mean, a lot of people, and justifiably so, think of philosophy as being a, a sort of, to use a phrase Justin Clark Doan uses a lot, kind of pie in the sky. Okay. Uh, but... In this no. case, we see how important vagueness is, particularly with regard to the law. Yes. I mean, I the mean, bald man want, paradox is, yeah, right. I mean, it's similar to, like you just right. pointed out, Roe right. v. Wade. You have to determine at some point when the, the fetus is viable. Yes. And it's not just as deciding when somebody isn't, isn't bald is vague. Uh, it's... It's not obvious. It's going to be arbitrary at some point. Yes, you, you, you have to do you the have, same you, thing. Yeah, you have to agree on an arbitrary cutoff point so that a judge would decide. Because in that case, there is no way of avoiding this, you know. And in so the idea of introducing an arbitrary cutoff point is the following. Okay, <coughs> you hope that you won't arrive at that situation. So you make sure that the chance of getting you exactly into a situation in which one uh, error would make a difference is very small. If it turns out that it is very important, then you make it sharper. Okay? I'll give you an example. Suppose uh, a certain crime has occurred, and the crime has occurred on the border between two states. The question is, whose jurisdiction is valid here? Who have who? Which state has a jurisdiction right? Okay, to to try this case. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
And when this is important, there are all kinds of procedure to make the border exactly as clear as possible. So sometimes you have a marking, a bridge, and you have some line in the bridge that this decides where it is. Okay, if it's not important, if there is no much chance of getting this, it doesn't matter. You can say, well, uh, we leave the border not very well defined because the chance of getting things exactly in the border region is very small. Is this clear? Mm -hmm. So this is a pragmatic rule and when the decision can be is important and when there is a chance that it will be just in the borderline case you try to make the border as sharp as possible. So, so there is for instance uh, a bridge then you mark on the bridge a certain line exactly there where the border passes. Now you can ask what happens if somebody treads on the, on the border line and just like uh, here Jeremiah Right. Rabbi Jeremiah and one there, one there, and then, okay, fine, so we'll have to make the line thinner right. or something like that. So the chance of being put in a problematic a position in which you don't know is goes to zero. But so roughly, uh, Frege's solution, or the way that he would look at the, the, the paradox as originally mm -hmm. framed, is that the way that you're using the, the predicate bald yes. is not precise enough. Yes. And in order to solve the paradox, yes. you need to write this illegitimate use of the predicate bald. That is correct. Okay. And then I think that takes us to Russell. Yes. Because Frege's... Russell... Uh, well, Fr well, Frege's approach already seems to be pretty linguistic. Yeah. Uh, Russell's and Russell's Russell reduced vagueness to language, right? Uh, Russell, yeah, Russell. Russell had an objections to Frege that what Frege proposes is very arbitrary, right? To, to and, make it an arbitrary, and, and this misses the, the whole. And this misses the whole point of Frege. Frege said in mathematics there is no place for vagueness, right? In natural language just to make sure that people do not utter assertions which have no truth value, let's, let's us for convenience, put an arbitrary borderline so that to make sure that. And uh, this is, uh, the example there is whether somebody is alive or is not alive. And uh, he, Russell actually have a, one argument of Russell against Frege that it is arbitrary is simply misses the whole point. Frege said, yes, it is arbitrary, but just we make it for convenience so that we will know that sentences have truth values in, in natural language. But then he had a better argument, and this is a, a stronger argument, that... Uh, in the case, he gives the argument from, I think, uh, from a, Russell knew where to give good good argument from, uh, The Tempest, uh, from the Shakespearean play Tempest. I mean, some, there is somebody who says, if my, uh, if my son 
is alive, then he is so and so and so, and uh, this is in Shakespeare. And according to Frege, the truth value doesn't come as it should come. From what I recall of Russell, the and this is a good argument against Frege that it doesn't fit the natural language. From, because from, if then is material conditional, and uh, uh, if if my son is alive, then uh, he is a king or something like that. He says, if my son is alive, then I am. So it is like material implication, but it gets the wrong truth value according to the Frege's construction, and it gets the right truth value according to Russell's construction. From what I recall, though, the the pith of Russell's view was, let's say, with the bald man paradox, mm -hmm. is that the man's head just is what it is, and however many hairs there are, they are what they are. The, yeah. the problem is just that our language is too imprecise to account for the world. So there, yeah, there's yeah. no real problem with the bald man's head. It's just our, our language is not yes. proper. So yes, but then how do you make a language proper? I mean, th that, is, that is the point. And uh, and there you get. Uh, but did he did he attempt to give a solution to the paradox? Uh, yes, it, it, this is his theory of definite descriptions. Okay. This is the des description the the unique so and so that has this property. Then it 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 all depends on the scope condition. So let's let's take an example. I think that there he uses the example of Mont Blanc maybe yes. where if you're standing on Mont Blanc mm -hmm. and you say I am on Mont Blanc mm -hmm. it's true and everybody will acknowledge that. Okay. But if you take one step down the mountain mm -hmm. people will still agree with it and if you keep walking and you keep saying I am on Mont Blanc Yes. Uh, eventually you'll be in the sea and it'll be false. Yes. So where is the point at which you stop being on Mont Blanc? Uh -huh. And I think what he says, the problem is, is you just are where you are, mm -hmm. but the issue is that... Linguistic uh, is linguistic. A, a linguistic issue, and, then, and that in that case you have no other recourse but to put an arbitrary... Okay. In order to make the language, in order to avoid this... You simply put an arbitrary. So he says something similar to Frege, then, in that uh, the the way to diffuse the paradox. No, but he, he diffuse it. Yes, but he his theory of definite descriptions depends on the scope. Not you see, the he gives an, a different analysis than Frege through his theory of definite. Descriptions. So his theory of definite descriptions gives him a way of precisifying the language. In, in a, a different uh, way from Frege's. That is correct. Okay. That is correct. And it, it all becomes a scope phenomena. And uh, the scope phenomena is uh, uh, the unique X such that and so on. And then uh, you have uh, the exists. It, it is translated in a logical sentence. But if you have two, two sentences, it depends which scope is bigger than the other. And uh, uh, mathematics has maximal scope, so to speak. Okay. So, I know that there are there are plenty of other responses to the Sorides paradox. Mm -hmm. One, uh, my favorite, just because of how simple it is, mm -hmm. is simply saying that four grains of sand make a heap. 
and that's oh, the yeah, that's yeah, the end yeah, of the no. story I because, know, because you have this, if you yeah. have three yes and then, then you put you can, one on top yeah, it's a okay. heap but but this is that natural language doesn't behave in this way okay uh, that's obvious this is a kind of a trick as a kind of a conceptual analysis that it must be in three dimensions and the minimal thing that can be in equilibrium and uh, in three dimensions is just if you have three balls and a ball resting on top of them that's uh, mm-hmm. that is a, but you, you know, don't find that convincing no that is uh, not at all convincing because you can have other phenomena which are not exactly a heap but uh, boldness and so on which doesn't doesn't right. that isn't solved by this con- construction and presumably and I think they're it's, all and I think I think it's four grains of sand do not make a heap in natural language even if even right if you look at under a microscope and see that three of them are if you ask uh, a thousand people if that's a heap they'll probably say no yes yes they wouldn't look any microscope and say well this is a heap because there is four gra- three grains and uh, the, uh, the one rests on top of them there's another approach that that we've talked about before, uh, Diane Raffman's psychologistic oh, yeah. approach. The, the, this is comp- yeah. This is uh, this. Uh, this is. Can you explain it? Yes, she 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 gives the experimental results that show that uh, the way more or less it is like this. Suppose you have a sequence of. Uh, pictures showing to you and you can now easily produce you you have such a, a efficient way of producing pictures by using various software and then you can have a long sequence where maybe it, it starts at red on one end no it, it starts as a cat and ends as a dog well let's do the the colors those okay. are easier so it starts at red on yes, one end yes let's say there's 50 squares yes and then it's orange on yes. the other end yes. so just like with the heap you go from uh not a heap yes. to a heap here you go from red to orange and they're yes. each each uh color square between the two is sort of a blending and one goes from one to the other yes okay so the the empirical evidence is the following suppose you go give me two colors uh, the extreme colors red and orange okay red and orange if you start from red and go to orange then people maintain that it is red 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 differently than if you start from orange and go to red because in in the memory there is a strong memory that this is still red okay so if you start with red you will go a long way towards orange you won't go all the way but you will the the point in which people make a, a an abrupt change and this is actually, you do statistics with many people, the point depends on where you start, either from red to orange or from orange to red. So perception plays a big role in it, uh, our psychology. No, the order in which these impressions come, because you you want to preserve the previous impression. Right, but that's a, a function of whatever's going on in our psychology. Yes. But this is uh, fine, but you cannot make... But here we we don't want to... This is not a clinical 
philosophical question here is not a clinical question that depends on the psychology of people but the, because but people can be misled and so on we want to take we remain we want to give a normative account not a psychologistic account but, but we still haven't explained how she treats the paradox and what i think what no. i think happens is she there's two experiments mm -hmm. in the first one you you show people red mm -hmm. then you sh and you ask them is this red and they say yes then you go to the next one is this red yes. is this red is yes. this red right. and at some point before you get to the perfectly orange square mm -hmm. they will say this is no longer red right. this is orange okay but then they do another experiment where they show them pairwise okay. two at a time okay and you ask are these both red okay so you show two Mm -hmm. The first two squares, are these mm -hmm. both red? You say yes. Mm -hmm. Then you take the second square mm -hmm. and you show it with the third square and you ask, are these both red? Right. Then you take the third square and couple it with the fourth square. Are these both red? Right. And if you if you present them two at a time in this yeah, way, yeah. they get all the way to the end of the sequence and they will still say that this is red. Yeah, okay. And so what what she, as I recall... Um, derives from this is mm -hmm. that we have two we might think of them as homunculi in our brain yeah. we have the categorizer and the discriminator yeah i remember now the, the, the right term. okay so what but what kind of and, philosophical question is this but the, but the bottom line is that she she says that there's there's no real paradox here it's just a product of of the way that we view things yes and we will we'll see a paradox in one place uh, depending on how the questions are framed or how the pictures, how we see the pictures, and then in another one, we won't see them. It's but all just a matter a of psychology. Yes, but and so what do you think about that? This is not, I mean, this is not a, a completely insatisfactory because we want to have a normative account. Imagine for instance... What do you mean by normative in this case? Normative means... Look... Suppose I'll I'll give you suppose uh, you there are all kinds of tricks in what in which you mislead people to to give uh, you know uh, wrong mathematical answers. It's well known that if you do it in in, in a way, even there is uh, there there is uh, a wrong answer that you can show that zero equals one when you be and and it can be in a complicated way you show this and you ask is this correct is this correct is this correct is this correct at the end you get the paradox zero equals one okay so uh, and you can express and 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 this is explained on psychological answer but i cannot say well it all depends on the way in which you present it, and sometimes zero is equal to one, and sometimes zero is not equal to one. Mm -hmm. So this is not a normative answer. Okay, people make mistakes in mathematics, and you have it, and you can induce these mistakes by presenting them with a lot, a lot of data, and you can see that at a certain point they will simply forget that this step is not legitimate. Now, if they forget that this state of not for legitimate, you cannot say, well, it, whether zero equals one or not depends on the way you present it to people. Mm -hmm. Right. No, okay. that, that, that makes sense to me. Okay. And, and so this is a philosophy. The same is 
just as a way you cannot do it with respect to mathematics, you cannot do it with respect to philosophy of language. Because philosophy of language cannot be reduced. You, ca you might, of course, philosophy of language is a phenomena that people speak and people have intuitions and so on. But you simply cannot... You, you you're cannot, fine, you're fine. You cannot uh, solve it by giving a psychological account what what brings people to do certain mistakes. That's all. Okay. So it's not we we want to have a language which is in principle free of contradiction. Okay, and uh, so that it does not depend the way you produce it or also on that mistakes will be recognized as mistakes. Not well, you know, it depends. You cannot incorporate the, this is, a, a, this is a fallacy to incorporate the psychology and to, to deduce everything which should be normative from the philosophical point of view to psychologism. This is a cheap psychologism. That's all. Mm -hmm. There is no mathematics. Mathematics is just what people tend to think, to, to think psychologically. It's, no, it's well known that people make a lot of mistakes when it comes to probabilities. And this is true, they make mistakes. Speaking of... But that doesn't mean that probability should be accommodating itself to what people think is probable or not. Speaking of probability, mm -hmm. uh, I think we can move on now to another version or purported version of the Sorides paradox, mm -hmm. which is the lottery paradox and degree yes. theory. Yes. Can you f tell me what the lottery paradox is? Oh, the lottery paradox is that uh, you say it's very, there is, uh, there is, say to speak, uh, one in 10,000, one over 10,000 uh, probability one over ten thousand. I will give you probability as 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 fractions of, of numbers, not as percentage right or ninety nine point nine 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 percent. Or so there is a chance of uh, one over a th ten thousand that you will win the lottery. Okay, so there's a lottery with ten thousand tickets, and if you buy one, you have one over ten thousand chance of winning it. Yes, and the the, the one the winner wins an, an enormous amount and so on. A million dollars, sure. Okay. So suppose you you want to make a, some practical decision. <coughs> so you say, well, I cannot. The practical decision shouldn't cannot. Uh, I cannot uh, take care of the uh, imagine a possibility. Suppose I I have to plan a trip. Okay. Yeah. Now. Or say you have to sign a contract for a million dollar house. Yes. If you only have a one in ten thousand chance of winning it, you're not yes. going to sign this contract. Right. You want yeah. you are not going to sign. You're the, going to you're going to say okay. There's virtually no chance that I'm going to win yes, the lottery. And, but then you continue this. You can uh, okay. If they, this I wouldn't sign. Suppose I have I repeat these things, and at a certain point I get. And that, so you say okay. So uh, one ticket I'm not going to win it. Add a ticket. Two tickets I'm still not going to win. Yeah, two yeah. over ten thousand. And, and then and so, the rule no, no, presume for, for for every decision that you make, if you consider it in isolation. Then you say, well, suddenly the, I, I can neglect the possibility of winning this 
versus not willing this when it comes to this. Right, because one ticket, yes. in the same way that one grain of sand doesn't make a difference yeah. in the heap, yes. you also want to say that one ticket is so negligible that right. one ticket isn't going to make a difference in your chances of winning the lottery. Okay. And uh, so, th so this is again, so to speak, a paradox. If because you, you, you end you up. You neglect the possibility of uh, winning for every decision that you can make, for all the decisions that you but can But you also, I mean, most importantly, I think you end up neglecting the possibility that if you, if you have all of the tickets, you no, will win the, the lottery. The, that, that, is what, that is what's called the lottery paradox. Right, right. So you, you neglect, and at the end, you come to, even if you have all the tickets, then also you don't, you, you neglect this possibility. And I think whoever's listening can see the resemblance between yeah. the uh, Sorites paradox and this paradox because the assumption is, okay, if, if zero grains of sand don't make a heap and one grain of sand doesn't make a difference, yes. then 10,000 grains of sand won't make a heap. But that's obviously absurd yeah. in the same way that having all 10,000 tickets uh, and not winning the lottery is absurd. Yes, so but this is different. Right, but so first, before you explain the actual solution yes. because I like this solution uh, can you tell me what degree theory is and how they would try to account for this the degree theory is that uh, you, you cannot speak about belief or not belief but beliefs comes in degrees and, uh, and not just belief but truth uh, yeah if you want truth comes in degrees so in the, in the same way yes. that uh, like we, we might say that okay um, one grain of sand is definitely yes, not a heap, yeah, but this, two grains of sand might be a little bit more, more little of a about, heap. So the degree theory takes the notion of truth and makes of it a question of degrees. So it's no longer bivalent. So yes, this. so every proposition is no longer just true or false. It's yes. it's true or false to a certain degree. Yes, that is correct. Expressed as a, yeah. a decimal. And and this this is a viable position. Mm -hmm. However, the lottery paradox that is not. This is not a way to treat the lottery paradox. But first, can you say how they would use it to treat the lottery paradox? It is the same. That uh, it's uh, truth comes in degrees. So, okay. and uh, so we're just behaving irrationally. There's no paradox. And no, it's not irrationally. We behave rationally, but truth comes in degrees. Okay. Simply, could, truth comes in degrees. It is like the Soritis. It's like the Soritis. The Soritis degrees for the Soritis paradox looks a natural, looks a reasonable position. Yes. Okay? So it's a matter of degrees. Okay? Uh, this is not my solution, but I uh, accept it as, an, as a very intuitive solution, that truth comes in degrees. Mm -hmm. However, this is true for the Soritis, but not true for the lottery paradox. Because if you want to treat the lottery paradox in this way, you miss something very important. <clears throat> and the important about the lottery paradox is that there is a place in which it jumps, really. Contrary to what you might thought, that the, the, it doesn't make the easy So there chance. is a sharp cutoff point, yes. whereas there isn't with the bald man or right, the Sorites. Right. Right. So there is a point at which 
you should, you should stop commit. buying tickets. Yes. Okay. That is the point. Can you explain why that is? It is simply that uh, here you take, uh, you have to use the notion of expected utilities. Which is, which is? Which is that uh, you have a utility, which is also a function of, uh, say, a real number of functions, of uh, buying a lottery ticket or not buying a lottery ticket. So you have a utility function. And now, how many lottery f tickets it, it is worth for you to buy uh, depends on this expected utility. And then there is a point in which, suppose, okay, so now, usually if you buy all the lottery tickets, you you will get a price which is shorter than the price that you will pay for all the right. tickets. So but if there were actually 10,000 tickets and they were a dollar each, the prize might just be $7,000. Okay. And that's to discourage someone from just buying all the tickets. No, well, that's not why. It's because no. they need to make money by, yeah, by yeah, holding the lottery. Is the state lottery makes, the state makes a lot of money by right. holding this lottery. So it's like in the casino, you know, because uh, the, the, house the, always the, wins. The, the, the the long run, the house always wins. Mm -hmm. but this is probability rules and expected utilities and so on. <coughs> but uh, you might say, well, it's still worthwhile because uh, the people get uh, enjoy it. They, they get okay. So you you give it. Suppose they have some real satisfaction from buying and so on. Let this have a utility function for that. And then if you have a utility function, then it, it is, uh, which takes care of your enjoyment or whatever, you, whatever is good, you consider good. So going, then you meet friends there and so on, this kind of thing. Give it a utility. And, and then, yes, it is, uh, is buying one ticket, is, it, there is still... A, you should buy one ticket, you should buy two tickets. But at a certain point, the utility switches in an arbitrary way, you know, the utility jumps. That the utility of buying N plus one ticket is smaller than the utility of buying N tickets. And then at that, that is a place in which you should buy exactly N tickets and not N plus one. Right. Because there is a switch of utilities, which is a sharp. So perhaps to... To summarize and mm -hmm. simplify that, mm -hmm. maybe there's a point at which the risk of of winning yeah. is worth buying the tickets. Yes. But once you hit a certain number, yes. you're expending so much money that the risk of losing yes. uh, outweighs. That is correct. So there is a sharp cutoff point yes. between them. Yes. Where okay. So in the and this is a, this is the answer to the lottery paradox. The lottery paradox is really not. A, a good paradox. It's kind me. of a right. It's not actually a paradox. It's, it's, it's something of economics or probability or however, it's whatever something you want to call it. People look. People uh, from the point of view of utility, there is also a whole literature which is devoted to explaining the rationality of economic rationality of people's decision. There is a whole work by uh, Tversky and Kahneman. Uh, prospects and so on what is the utility the utility will depend on your total assets and the utility is depend on what you have 
So uh, somebody who is a millionaire and uh, he wouldn't even bother buying one ticket or two right. tickets. It's very individual. It's very individual, but it depends on the total amount of money that you have. So it, it works either it is a, a certain curve like this or this, and mm -hmm. there's a whole theory which takes care of this. Mm -hmm. And try to tries to make the odd behavior of people rational. But I think at the end you can show that uh, people are very sensitive to the way the problem is being presented. You can present the problem in a slightly different way and then all of a sudden you see that their judgments switch. So that the fact that people are irrational is a well-established psychological fact. And there's a, a well-known uh, guaranteed irrational, books written guaranteed irrational and so on. Is a famous writer, uh, I forget names, is uh, originally an Israeli uh, uh, theorist, probability, uh, economic and so on and uh, it uh, it uh, it shows how irrational people are by conducting very a set of experiments uh, in one experiment the people are, are asked to choose between uh, two numbers or to, to to decide what to do and this depends on uh, on a certain numerical value. Would it go with this or with this? And in another, this, the same group of people or an additional group of people is presented with the same questionnaire, but with an additional instruction, uh, write, please write your social security number on the top of the, of the questionnaire. Just, for, for just your social security number. The mere fact that you write social security number at, at the top might change the decision of the how to answer the questionnaire. Do you know why that was? I tell you why. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the idea is the following. Suppose you want the, you are you you are well to do or doesn't matter your economic status is one you consider buying a ticket to the big uh, what is it uh, one of these <coughs> huge baseball uh, super bowl super bowl and uh, then you consider should how much would you give to to t how much no. would you pay for a super bowl uh, yes, ticket yes how much would you pay for a super bowl ticket or two super bowl tickets or whatever okay so People find it very difficult if it, if the situation is kind of borderline situation. Is it worth it for me? Is it not for worth it for me? They find it very difficult to make the comp a precise comp evaluation of that. So, if you write your social security number there, the social security number gives you, so to speak, a frame, a parameter in the frame. Now. 
You what do you mean? Like it gives you a monetary value, or it, it or? gives you a value that you co- you compare things by assuming this value. But like you're subconsciously seeing your social security number, and you're saying, and it gives you. It gives you that this is, say, a, a medium number. This is a I large see. number. I see. So I if see. the social security number is higher, you would be willing to pay more money okay. than not because this is That's the frame. That's very interesting. This is the frame condition. The way our minds work. Yeah, yes. This is the frame, what is called the, fra- the framing problem. You give them all kinds of information that really has no logical relation but it gives you an impression of a number which is yes this is something i would be willing to now this is a big number or this is this is a reasonable number mm -hmm. and uh, there have been a lot of experiments uh, a lot of them conducted this this is what which made uh, uh, kahneman and tversky famous and uh, eventually gave uh, Kahneman the Nobel Prize in Economics, where they, they get conducted a lot of experiments in which they sh- have shown that the way you present the same question to people in two different ways and you get completely different answers. Were they your students? No, they were my uh, uh, same... same uh, they, they, we were on the same, what do you call it... Uh, Cohorts. Oh, really? Yes. I thought th- I thought Kahneman was a young guy. Not that you're not a young guy, but no, no, he's older than me. Kahneman? Yes. Half a year or something. Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah, Kahneman is definitely definitely older. Tversky is a little bit younger. So they they are my cohorts. I see. And I re- I knew them from Israel as cohorts. Got it. Okay. So and this. <coughs> so for instance, they they even. You take doctors, and you pre- which are professionals and so on, and you present the question that there is a certain medicine, and uh, you can give it, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But and then you say, and by giving it, uh, you will uh, you will have one uh, hundred people uh, uh, die. No, one hundred people. You save one hundred people. Okay. And then you give the same question, but you say, and then you risk that so and so many people will die. It is the same thing. Saving 100 is the same as losing 900. But in one case, case you use the phrase save. And in other case, you use the word lose. Mm -hmm. And logically, the situation is such that saving 900 is the same as losing 100. Okay, it's the same. It's altogether there are thousands. Either some of them will be saved, some of them will be lost. But if you present the same alternative using the word save, then you would tend to give more of the medicine. <laughs> and if you would lose the same thing of giving lose, you give to you. You will judge not to give the medicine. There and this is given to professionals, to doctors, which is which are very high professionals, but all of them fall victim to this kind of illusion it's the, like an optical illusion there was a story you told me i don't recall if it was related to zada's fuzzy logic or yes. to degree theory but 
It had to do with designing train stations, maybe in yeah in Japan, t- Japan, in Japan, Japan. Did that have to do with vagueness at all? Uh, in a round. Can you can you tell me that story? I thought okay. it was really good. Okay, so designing a uh, giving a uh, designing a train is means to control automatically to have software, which controls automatically. Uh, change in velocity as a train approaches the right so th- so they so th- this should be a function of wait 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 so they so they they were designing a train station and they wanted to automate it yes so they wanted some sort of software that could control the trains yes okay okay so the train approaches and this will depend on all kinds of information that you have the the automating software has to take into account the weather all sorts all of things. kinds of things and then, but then you put in the equations of physics and so on in order to find out what is uh, how it should behave. And this became extremely difficult and impossible to do. Because there are just so many variables Gav- and it, would, it just would require a ton of computational power. Yeah, yes, But exactly. humans, human conductors are able to do it. And yes, and what they end up is they took a human conductor and they monitored how he reacts, and they tried to imitate this conductor, and this succeeded. Mm-hmm. And so. why? Why did I think that this might have involved vagueness? Do you recall? I or maybe. And there's also something I think that they because did the whole thing. The whole thing is eventually, from a point of view of human, it is vague. The conductor. Wouldn't they be able to give you the sharp cut? This is the way I do it. Right. Okay. okay. Yeah. And so there will be no sharp, sharp answer. You will just email, and and the conductor might be there. Might be a small number of cases in which the conductor would be at a loss. And didn't but it is still worthwhile to imitate the conductor rather than to imitate the differential equations to bring all the differential equations and to take care of that. And wasn't it also the case that they had to implement some degree of of chance there because the the human is kind of random and unpredictable? They did. Yeah. But the chance, w- but but the first attempt to work out the, the dif- partial differential equations, which control the whole thing, it was was much beyond they could do mm. with the computer that they had. It is nowadays uh, neural networks and the whole thing of uh, artificial intelligence and so on. It all goes by e- by making the computer learn and uh, making the computer simulate uh, human behavior. And and eventually, they don't even know how these experimental results will uh, will affect. So they end up by having a prescription, which they cannot, which all they, they can say is, uh, yes, uh, the computer decided this, and the computer has a very good record of making good decisions. So, before we finish today, I'd like to hear a bit about how you ended up solving vagueness, or yeah, uh, solving vagueness. Well, I think you developed a whole a new logic called contextual logic. No, well, I mean the fact. Yes, I I had a. Co- the, the notion of context is well known, and uh, this is uh, the fact that everything is con- a lot of things are contextual and so on. 
Uh, but so the the key the key no the the point is that the way I did it, I thought that uh, vagueness is. Did you think of vagueness as, to use the parlance of the day, a feature, not a bug? So vagueness isn't something that we're trying to get right. to get rid of. Yes. The way that but I think. Okay, so vagueness is. Uh, is it f- mostly a linguistic phenomena and vagueness is very important and it is very useful okay so it is not that following perhaps a certain line of thought we should be as precise as possible <coughs> we have to be vague because this is more practical Okay, and uh, for instance, if you say, "I'll meet you around mid," uh, uh, I'll I'll meet you <coughs> midday, mid or uh, I'll meet you around one o'clock. Obviously, if I come later, two minutes after one, I'm still fulfilling the promise. Mm-hmm. If I come half an hour after one. That's not so good, okay? You told me one, you didn't tell me one thirty. But we wouldn't quibble if I do it at one in five, a five after one, or seven after one, and so on. So it enables you to be flexible. Yes. And something this reminds me of is going back to social security numbers. There's a reason that we we sort of sacrifice clarity yes. in order to facilitate. Right. our everyday interaction. So while we could have a perfect naming system in which everybody is named by their social security right. number, right. we it. have uh, 10,000 Johns in this country. Yeah. But... 10,000? Several... Yeah, no, maybe, maybe, no, maybe a couple th- million. Take family names even. You will but the, the point is just that we take advantage of the context i might only know one two or three johns yes, yes. Um, and even though that's ambiguous it's right. it's not vague because there's no scalar component right like we mentioned it it enables us to be flexible and get along with one another right so th- this is so, so that's the rough overview of of the attitude you took towards vagueness vague. is that, that is it's cor- that is that is we cor- don't want to get rid of it we just sort of want to understand it better. Right, but the point is really that uh, vagueness, in vagueness, uh, we presuppose it's it's a kind of a local phenomena because uh, it depends on the, you know, eventually there might be sharp cut-off points, but these are very rare. The point we risk, we risk the fact that uh, uh, there will be a sharp cut-off point, but it is worthwhile because of chance of doing exactly which will bring us to the... It's very small. <coughs> so, uh, and it is a linguistic phenomena. Vagueness would be a, big, a, a, a linguistic phenomena. And it, it is a local phenomenon. Hanka, could we possibly have five more minutes? Oh, am I disturbing you with my... Uh, it's just coming up on the microphones. Oh, so just sorry. five more minutes. Uh, half an hour, no rush. Whatever you need. Okay. Just start it. 
Okay. I think it should just be five or so more minutes. But thank you. You're very <laughs> Okay. Okay, so my example was take the take the property of being rich. Mm-hmm. Okay. That smells good though. It smells uh, onions or something. Yeah. So uh, take the property of being rich. And uh, this is vague. Okay, and there's no sharp cut-off points. I was vague with five minutes. It might be seven. <laughs> yes. So, usually, uh, by definition, this is uh, tolerant. For, Rich, and, richness is tolerant. Yeah, it's a tolerant predicate. Yes, by definition, of it's a linguistic rule. It's not something to do with logic or ontology or things. It's a linguistic rule. For instance, you want to... Uh, is uh, Rachel... You may, is our friend Rachel rich? Uh, or is she poor? Okay. And uh, you suppose you know all her assets and whatever she has in the bank and so on. So you made a, all this is known. Does she is she rich? And you you say no, she's not rich, okay? Or you might even say she's poor, okay? I say wait a minute. Now she picked up a penny from uh, from the pavement. She picked out a penny. Now she is rich. This is by a linguistic rule impossible. Mm-hmm. This scenario contradicts the rule of language. This is a sor- this is the source of the sorightness in the case of rich and poor. Okay. You add a penny, you add a penny, you add a penny, you add a penny, and these are predicates which are supposed to work in the overwhelming case ca- number of cases that we encounter. Of course, if you repeat this rule a lot of time, there will be a place in which you will be forced to say rich, but this is the risk that you run. So these are all kind of, they are supposed to be employed locally. And by locally, you mean? In a context. In a specific context, under a certain number of applications. Right. The the context should not include a cutoff point. Right. Yes. The context is that it is, in a certain context which doesn't repeat itself 10,000 times to have this modus ponens rule and uh, move you to another context. Of course, in very rare cases, you will, be, you will be forced to do so, but the judgment is that there is a very small chance that you will be encounter in practical life these cases. It is just like deciding where the jurisdiction of a certain state stops. So, in, for instance, in the border between South Korea and North Korea, they included the whole mechanism to decide what is a border. So, there is a certain neutral zone, and then there is a certain procedure, and a, a kind of a, a procedural decision where the border between South Korea, because there it is very important not to get the things wrong. Because both states don't want to get involved in a war that none of them wishes for. And so what you're doing is not necessarily trying to solve vagueness, but to give us a certain degree of insight into what is happening. Yes. And to... I think this is a solution of vagueness. Vagueness is the willingness to take a 
a chance that something will switch very extremely where the chance is very small. Okay. To take the risk that there will be some, you will have to do something like that by repeating a lot of things. You will come to a situation in which you will make an abrupt chance, but provided that the chance is very small. So vagueness, all the vague predicates are supposed to be used within a context in which vagueness is tolerated. I see. So is there, are there any last things that you want to say about vagueness? I think that we've, we've touched on some of the key points. Yes, I think, I think this is what vagueness is. I mean, you have to, there are some mathematical theorems that have to be proven there about the logic of vagueness right. and about things. Your paper is very formal and technical. There's a lot of symbols that... Yeah, the paper is technical, but then I declare, yes, you can prove this, you can prove this, and you can prove this, and... I proved, I hope I can still reconstruct, this was more of a philosophical paper. I noticed that in philosophical papers, if you say you can prove this, you don't have to be the, bring the proof. <laughs> no, the, the, the point is to, look, I mean, people made a career on works which were mathematically faulty. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess m one last thing. You had you had a nice example in your paper on vagueness mm. about from the law yes. that I think a student pointed you to yes. with regard to motorized vehicles yes. and skateboards. Uh, yes, yes. I, just as another application of how this is relevant to the actual world. Oh, the actual world, not not having slippery slope uh, situations in which you 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 get from one to extend the other. This is. When you come to law, then the law makes an arbitrary decision, so, which will be the cutoff points. So we talked about the Roe v. Wade example, but yes. maybe you could just give one one more example about how, in particular, well, your this solution is a motori motorized. Uh, okay, but, so at a certain playground where children play, and uh, so there is a rule that you cannot have a vehicle, a motorized vehicle. But you have, you can use skateboards, and now the question is: Suppose you have a skateboard, I think, which is motorized. There is a, does it fall in this or does it fall in that? And and uh, in um, in evolution theory, you know, there is animals you don't know. Is it a mammal? Like a platypus. Yes, a platypus. A famous example. This is uh, it lays eggs. And the, the eggs uh, from the eggs the, the eggs hatches, and the small platypus and the small platypus suck suckle uh, milk from the mother. Mm -hmm. You see, the mother feeds them with me. Is it is it a, a, a mammal, or is it a, what a, reptile? A reptile or something like that. Yeah. So in biology, you have all the time things like that and the, also the how do you explain those things uh, all nature <laughs> you you would just say that it's a linguistic issue right no that because no it's not a linguistic issue because it's an issue that the philosophy of science has to solve in this case what is more important from the point of view of the theory this is what's called natural predicates Quine has a very nice paper about natural predicates. 
and the natural predicates, it depends from the point of view of the whole theory, does the theory look more appealing and more well-built if you classify it as a reptile or as a mammal? You see, mm-hmm. so it is. It so there, is. It might be deep, deep. For instance, so it's not purely linguistic in that it clearly, no, it no. clearly has relevance to our science. Right. It's norm- it's, it's also normative. It's normative because you, but the considerations involve the whole theory. Does this make the theory more, more smooth? Does it uh, make the theory more transparent? Does it give us indications what to research, what experiment to do, and so on and so forth? This is what's called natural predicates. And Quine has a nice paper about that. That that is the considerations of the whole theory. That These are normative considerations, also in jurisprudence. You know, when you have legal theory, this is also, it depends on your whole, how your whole theory looks if you make this decision or this decision. Okay. Well, I think that about covers it for today. Thanks again okay. for doing this with me. Okay. Hopefully we'll, we'll get to do, an, do another one or two before I leave. Okay, hopefully. Okay. <laughs>